come down to a sinful world for an old dirty garbage can like this and clean it up and make something beautiful of it. There he is, the one who walked the shores of Galilee. He knew what it was to be happy, to go to a wedding with his friends, who knew what it was have those same friends desert him and leave him alone. There he is. There he is, the one who, who, who had the same emotions that you and I have, I think. Felt the same things that we feel. 
as we go through our everyday lives. There's nothing that you'll go through that the Lord hasn't experienced. He's still my Savior, and He's still your Savior. Whatever you felt, He felt it too. the Lord. Let's open our Bible and be finding the book of Judges chapter 1, uh, the book of Judges chapter 1, and I'll draw your attention to three different scenes in Judges chapter 1 that I want you to look at tonight, and uh, trust the Lord will speak to our hearts uh, tonight. Someone gave me a note that J.J. Edwards uh, is at Tri-County Hospital having emergency surgery, so remember J.J., be praying for him tonight. Also, ladies, you need to let 
Uh, let us know tonight if you are going on the ladies' retreat, May 17 and 18. So the note says your money's not due until the 30th, but you need to let them know tonight if you are going. Then it was a blessing this morning. Had a gentleman visiting with us who's here at the end of the service, Earl McAllister. He got saved this morning. Wasn't that a blessing? So we praise the Lord for that and rejoice in that. Uh, Mickey Denise, where are you? That was, that was good. That was good. Now, I've heard your mom and daddy both sing, and I've never asked this, but have you, are you adopted? Or are you? You have to be. <laughs> that was great. Good to have Mickey and Cookie and some friends with them tonight, and uh, they serve the Lord in mission work. And then uh, Brother Paul's dad, Freddie Crow, is here. Freddie, where are you at? Freddie, where are you at? Would you stand right back here in the back? He's served in Costa Rica for a number of years, now working in Miami, and good to have all of them in our services tonight. So thank you so much for being here. This past week I was in West Virginia and First Baptist Church of Blue Well, West Virginia. Second time to be there and uh, love their pastor. And uh, when we're together, we just talk about the Bible and, and talk about Scripture. And there have been several passages of Scripture getting away. First time I have been away for several weeks now. And so it was a time for me to get caught up on some reading and some scriptures that I wanted to spend some time in and and so Judges chapter 1 was one of them and me and the pastor we spent one afternoon just walking through it and talking about it but here is an interesting scene or scenes that I want to draw to your attention I want you to stand as we honor the reading of his word the public reading of his word and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 and I'll read down through verse 7 and tonight I want us to just simply think about the lessons from the thumbs and the toes. The lesson from the thumbs and the toes. Notice verse 1. The Bible said, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. And behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And Judah said unto Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into my lot, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went up with him. And Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they slew them in Bezek 10,000 men. Verse 5. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek. And they fought against him. And they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued after him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Threescore and ten kings having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table. As I have done, so God hath requited me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Thank you. you may be seated. We'll think tonight about these thumbs and these toes, or consider the scenes that we have here in Judges 1, verses 1 through 7. Let's pray. Our Father, tonight as we come to you, we're mindful of what the New Testament said, that what is contained in the Old Testament has been given to us for an example. 
It has been given to us that we might learn from both the successes and the mistakes of those involved. And Father, they are given to us and preserved for us divinely in your word that we might glean from them, that we might draw from them lessons to help us to be what they were or to not to be what they were. And so, Father, tonight we come to one of those chapters in the Bible, one of those scenes in the Bible in which we have many, many things that we can glean from these individual lives. And so, Father, tonight I come to you. I want to glean from them. I need what we find in this story. And so I ask you to speak to my heart. And I ask you, Lord, to speak to everyone in this room tonight. And may we learn the lessons of the thumbs and the toes. May we draw from these different scenes that we have in Judges 1. Put a truth in our heart, put truths into our heart tonight that will help us to be able to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. Put things and truths into our lives that we can grow on and build our lives upon. So speak to us tonight. We're listening. And talk to us through your word, for it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things, amen. Now, if you can imagine in your mind tonight this elaborate banquet, and in this banquet room or this room where this banquet is being held, there is this table that is full of food. And there's all kinds of dignitaries and important people that are sitting around this banquet table. And in the center or at the head of the banquet table, there sits a king. And it's a very festive occasion. It's a very uh, elaborate occasion as they all gather in this banquet room around this banquet table. Well, if you can paint that kind of picture in your mind, then you begin to get a mental picture of one of the scenes that we find in Judges chapter 1. In fact, there are three scenes that I'm going to draw from tonight. In fact, I'm going to go backwards from them. Instead of starting with the first one, I'm going to go to the last one and work my way back. But you'll find in this scene here, in Judges chapter 1, you find one scene in which there is a king by the name of Adonai Bezak. And we'll learn something about him tonight. In another scene, we find 70 unidentified kings. And we find them in a very, very unusual position and condition. And then you have a scene in which you find Judah, which means praise, and his advance and conquering of the Canaanites. I find in these three scenes some powerful lessons for you and me as a believer. I find some powerful truths that we can glean from them. Now, I know that when we read the Scripture that you may read one passage and draw something from it that I wouldn't draw. On the other hand, I may read something and draw something from it that maybe you wouldn't draw. But that's the unique thing about the Bible and how God takes His Word and speaks to our heart. But as I read this passage and the things that come to my mind, I submit them unto you tonight as powerful lessons powerful lessons for each of us to learn as a believer. But not just powerful lessons, but personal lessons. Lessons that I want to learn, lessons I need to learn, lessons you need to learn, and lessons you should want to learn. So I want us to look tonight at these three scenes. Again, instead of beginning in verse 1 and working through them, I'm going to go to the last scene and then work our way back. And I'm going to give just a simple little outline to these three scenes tonight, but jot them down and listen and follow tonight. The first scene that I want to call is this. It is a scene that should grieve us. When I look at the scene here in Judges chapter 1 and in verse 7, I find a scene that should grieve us as a believer. 
For you look in verse 7 and you find there that Adonai Bezak refers to something that occurred under his rule. And he describes three score and ten kings. He describes how that he cut their thumbs and their great toes off. And he describes how they were gathered, how they gathered their meat under his table. Adonai Bezak, he describes a scene, as I said, that it occurred under his rule as king. Well, I find these 70 kings. We do not know who these kings are. We do not know what kingdoms they ruled. We do know they were kings. And so we know somewhere they sat up on a throne. And we know somewhere they had power and they had a position. But we find 70 unidentified kings tonight. But you find them in a tragic condition. And when I look at the tragic condition of these 70 kings, I am mindful of that which is lost in their lives. And as I look at what is lost in their life, I am mindful of things that can be lost in our life as a believer. Can I just point out four things that I find that these kings had lost? Write them down. First of this is this. You see, obviously, they had lost, number one, their thrones. These were kings. And when I think about these kings having lost their thrones, I think about how defeated they are. When you look at them in Judges chapter 1 and verse 7, they're no longer sitting upon their throne. They're no longer ruling as their position and heritage called for. They're no longer reigning as their call, as their name would speak of. They are a king. They are kings, but now they have lost their thrones. They have been defeated. They're no longer sitting upon their thrones. They're no longer ruling. They're no longer reigning as they ought to have been as a king. When I think about the matter of ruling and reigning, I'm mindful tonight that the Bible speaks of the believer ruling and reigning in life. You see, the Bible does not paint the picture of a child of God that is defeated. The Bible does not describe the normal Christian life as one that is up and down and in and out and on and off and hot and cold. The Bible describes a life of victory. The Bible describes a life where we're kings and we rule and reign in life through Jesus Christ. The Bible in Romans 5, 17 talks about how we are to reign in life. In 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, it describes how that in Him we always triumph. We're always victors. We're always, we always are triumphing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a victim, but a victor. Romans chapter 8 verse 37 speaks of how we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So the image that is given in the Bible of a believer is someone that is a king and priest unto God. And they are ruling in life and they are victorious in life. But yet there are many believers that have lost their throne, you might say. Instead of living as a king, they're living as a slave. Sin has a hold on their life. Sin has a hold and a grip upon their life. Sin, their life is defeated because of some sin in their life. Their life is defeated because of some sin that has never been dealt with. Sin has a hold on their life. Satan has a hold on their life. But you find these seven kings, one, they had lost their thrones. But there's a second thing you see they've lost. Not only have they lost their thrones, but you also notice in verse 7, they had lost their thumbs. For you notice there that he describes how Adonai Bezak had cut off their thumbs. Now, that was not unusual in that day. And one of the reasons they cut off their thumb was because of what their thumb represented. 
When the Bible speaks about Adonai Bezak cutting off their thumbs, he is what he was literally doing was incapacitating them for military service. They were kings. And as a king, they were the ones that would lead their armies in the battle. They were the ones that would ride high up on their horses and march in front of their soldiers, giving their army confidence. They were the ones that would lead their armies in the battle. And so when they cut off their thumb in those days, it was a way of preventing them from being able to grip a sword. It was a way of preventing them from being able to hold a sword in their hand and raise it high and lead their armies in the battle. So what you have is kings now that had sat upon a throne, but they have now been defeated and they're no longer reigning and ruling as they should have been. And now you not only find them defeated, but you find them disabled. They no longer have the ability to fight the battle that they had to fight. I am mindful tonight that as a believer, we are in spiritual warfare. As I have said so many times before, this world in which we live is not a playground. It is a battleground. And every day of our life, we are battling with this world around us, this world system around us that is pulling at us and drawing at us and wanting to win my affection and to draw my heart from Christ. I am battling with my flesh, this old flesh, this old unconverted part of me still loves the things of this world and it still loves the things of sin. And so there's a part of me that longs for what the world offers me. And so I battle with this flesh every day. And I battle with the world, I battle with the flesh, and I battle with the evil one himself, how he wants to trick me and trap me and trip me up. And so I am battling every day. I'm in spiritual warfare. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 6, 11, that we're to put on the whole armor of God that we might be able to stand. And it describes how we're to take the sword of the Spirit. And that word sword that is used there, I find, is a very fascinating word. He describes a sword, which is the only offensive weapon that we're given in Ephesians 6. And he says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And he tells us that we're to fight our enemy with the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. And the word sword that is used there is not a word that describes the long sword that you wail with both hands and whack away or swing away as you fight in combat. But it's more like the dagger that you would pull from your sheath as you are one-on-one. -on -one. And in order to win with a dagger, you had to, ha had to put that dagger in at a precise point. You had to use it in a precise way. And the ideal is that it's not just that we carry a Bible in our hands and have a Bible sitting on our coffee table, but we take what this book says and we use it in our life day by day. We take the truth of God as we battle the world and we take the truths of God as we battle the flesh and we take the truths of God as we battle the evil one. But what happens sometimes in our life is we lose that ability to reign. We're no longer reigning and living victoriously. And the result is we find ourselves not able to fight the good fight of faith and is a good soldier of Jesus Christ. But there's a third thing they lost. Are you with me? Say amen. Not only did they lose their thrones, and not only did they lose their thumbs, but verse 7 said they lost their toes. And of course, the toe would represent the ability to keep a balance in life. It was their big toe they cut off. It wasn't just the little toe or one of their toes. It was their big toe that was cut off, which would affect the way they would stand. It affect their ability to stand straight, affect their ability to stand strong. And so here they are, kings that should have been ruling that are now defeated. 
Kings that should have been reigning that are now disabled. They have lost their thumbs. They can't grip a sword in battle. Now they've lost their toe. They're neither capable of fight or flight. They are men that are unable to stand. Again, the Bible tells us that one of the things essential in the life of the believer is that we be able to stand. Again, we're in a spiritual warfare. These kings lost their thrones in fight and lost their thrones in battle. And we as a believer have to be able to stand. We must be able to stand. And when we lose our spiritual toe, you might say, it leaves us incapable of being able to stand in battle. But I submit unto you there's a fourth thing they lost. They lost their thrones, which left them defeated. They lost their thumbs and toes, which left them disabled. But I want to submit unto you they lost able. Adonai Bezak describes these 70 kings. He said, I captured them, I conquered them, I cut off their thumbs, I cut off their toes, and I made them slaves. And they, I made them behave like dogs under my table, graveling for morsels of meat, sitting under their tables defeated and disabled and disgraced. Instead of sitting proudly up on a throne as a victor, they are sitting under a table like a dog as a victim, just begging for little crumbs. Now I ask you this, what do you mean they lost their testimony? Can you see those once proud kings on their knees under his table? fighting around for a piece of meat that would fall to the floor? Can you see those once proud conquerors now under the table like children fighting for a piece of bread? Now, can you see them there? Then let me ask you something. In their condition, who could they now influence? In their condition now, who could they now inspire? There had been a time as a king when they had influenced the people. There had been a time as a king they had inspired others to follow them and to follow their will. But who now would follow someone sitting or crawling around under a table like a dog? Who could they influence now? Who could they inspire now? I think about many believers in our condition, and I think about them losing their thrones and losing their thumbs and losing their toes and losing their testimonies. How descriptive that is of many believers' life. I think about many times our inability to influence others for Christ. And I think about many times our inability to inspire others to want to know the same Lord that we claim and profess to know. And many times our inability to influence and our inability to inspire is because we live every way but the way God intended us to live as a believer. Are you listening to me tonight? You are a king in Christ you are to rule in life. You are to reign in life. You are to be a victor, not a victim in life. You are to conquer, not be conquered in life. The world and the flesh and the devil is not to defeat you. It's not to loot, uh, strip you of your throne or strip you of your thumbs or your toes, which would leave you with the kind of life that will not influence others and will not inspire others. How many believers live far beneath their privileges? How many believers live far beneath their position? I submit unto you how grieved this scene, how we ought to be grieved when we look at this scene. When we look at kings, once proud kings, groveling like dogs under a table, how it must, how it should grieve our heart as a believer that we could live or end up in that kind of condition. Amen? A scene that should grieve us. But let me hasten on to a second scene. Not only do I see a scene that I would 
simply say should grieve us, but I see a scene that should grip us. For let me point back to Adonai Bezak himself. We look at Adonai Bezak, and we not only see what he did to 70 kings, 70 unidentified kings, we see how he treated them, but you also see how things ended up for Adonai Bezak himself. In fact, when he testifies about what he did to 70 kings, that is a result of what had happened in his own life. It's really the scene is not there. He just mentions the scene that what has happened to him is what he had done to others. And so the first scene ought to grieve us to realize that we can get in that kind of a condition as a believer. But the second scene ought to grip our hearts. And I say grip our hearts because when we look at the second scene and look at Adonai Bezak, we see how serious sin is in our life. And we see the outcome and the consequences of sin. In fact, when I look at Adonai Bezak, this is what comes to my mind, that we reap what we sow. When I look at Adonai Bezak, the thing that comes to my mind, payday someday. And when I look at Adonai Bezak, it reminds me that whatever I sow, if I sow the flesh, I am going to reap of the flesh. But if I sow the Spirit, I'm going to reap of the Spirit. Let me show you what I'm talking about. For one thing, notice what he experienced. We looked at verse 7, go back to verse 6. Adonai Bezak, he's now in battle with Judah. We'll say something about Judah in a moment. But Adonai Bezak fled, and they pursued after him. And notice what happened. They caught him. And notice what they did to Adonai Bezak when they caught him. They cut off his thumbs, and they cut off his toes. It is then that he testifies, I did the same thing to 70 kings. I cut off their thumbs. I cut off their toes. But what you have here, you have someone, someone experiencing and reaping exactly what he sowed. You have here, what, when I look at what he experienced, I see what we reap or what he reaped. What he had done to others, he finds himself reaping the same thing. Remember what the Bible said? God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now, you don't treat God lightly. You don't push God off as just some little bellhop in heaven. You don't mock God and treat him as if what he had to say in his word doesn't matter and what he has to say in his word is not true. You don't treat God like, oh, you're up there, you'll do this, you'll do that, but I'm going to live any way I want to. No, you don't mock God. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. What I'm saying to you tonight is that if we sow the flesh, we're going to reap of the flesh. That if we live in sin somewhere, we're going to be bitten by sin. That if we play with fire somewhere, we're going to be burnt by that fire. There's the matter of reaping what we sow, but not only what he experienced, but look at verse 7, what he expressed. For he says, after they cut his thumbs and toes off, he says, in truth, that's what I did to three score, three score and ten kings. I cut their thumbs and their great toes off, and they gathered meat under my table. And notice this statement. As I have done, so God hath requited me. In other words, you not only see what he reaped, but you see what God required. He reaped what he sowed. He sowed to the flesh, and he reaped to the flesh. But now he says, this is what God requires. He said, I've only reaped what is right in I've only reaped what is right in the eyes of God. I've only reaped what God required of me. I have sowed to the flesh and I have reaped to the flesh. You know what he's stating in that statement there? That God's going to deal with sin somewhere. And that God's not going to tolerate sin and God's not going to put up with sin and God's not going to allow you to get by with sin. Now listen to me, I'm talking to me, I'm talking to every one of you. 
Sometimes we get the ideal that my sins are unknown to man. And sometimes we get the ideal that nobody, as long as nobody ever finds out about it, I won't pay the consequences for it. But I want you to understand something tonight. It is not who finds out in this life that matters. It's who knows all along that matters. There's not a thing in my life, there's not one thing I have done or one thing I will do that my God doesn't know about it. And I assure you of one thing, that if I sin against my God, somewhere God will requite that thing of me. Somewhere there is going to be a payday. Now, I believe this. I do not believe you can live any way you please and get by with it. I don't believe you can do anything you want to. In our society anymore, it seems like, I mean, if we could open the doors of a lot of people's hearts and the skeletons in there, it would stagger our imagination of the things that often exist in the church of Jesus Christ. And we think nobody knows, but God knows. And I promise you, according to the Word of God, somewhere there's a payday for sin that's not dealt with with God. He'll call, He will, He will require the same thing of you. It's like Hebrews said. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6, that God scourgeth and he chasteneth, uh, chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And I corrected that because the order is so critical. He chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. That word chastening there is a word that simply means child training. It's like when your children were young and they first came to this world, there was a process of teaching them things. And, you know, this, the babies, when our children come in this world, when we brought them home, they were not interested in mom and daddy. They come in, the first thing they started doing was uh, is, is, is staking out the house and looking around, and then they saw it. And that become their passion in life. It was that whatnot that had been passed down from your great-great-grandmother. That expensive thing, that heirloom there, that thing that meant so much to your heart, that's what that little fella, that little girl saw, and they said, one day that's going to become mine. And so it became their mission in life. It became their goal in life. I'm going to get that thing. I want to chew on that thing. I want to lick on that thing. I want to throw that, uh, throw that thing down and break it. That became their great mission in life. And you know what happened? One day they discovered they had legs and those legs were more than just to hang, hang off their baby seat with and they learned they could crawl around with it and so their mission was getting closer and they could see it just days from now. I will achieve my great purpose in life. And so finally they learned how to stand up and one day they got that thing. And you know what you did? That heirloom that you loved so much and that little whatnot had been passed down from generation to generation. I know what you did. You said over there, oh, isn't that sweet? Go ahead and chew on it, break it. It's all right. It was my great-great-grandmother's. Now, I know what you did. You went over there and got them little hands. And you said, no, 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 no. You don't touch that. It's like my kids, when they was growing up, I always had books laying around and they would mark in them. I still pull out books and I find where they have drawn all through those books. And I've been aiming to go to them and say, what did you write here, please? I want to know what you wrote in my book. <laughs> and they've drawn all through them and they chewed on the corners and whatever there. And I'd always, listen, don't get, don't, don't you get the books. You see a book, you leave it alone. The grandkids, they come over, like I found myself the other day. I heard Terry say, Tanner, put Daddy's, put, put Papa's book down. I said, oh, leave me alone. It's all right. It's all right. Amen. <laughs> but you did all these things. What you taught them that they shouldn't touch the stove, they would get burned. You taught them not to get out in the street. And a lot of times what you did was you smacked their little old hands or you patted them on the bottom or something like that. You were teaching them. It is a child training process of learning them of things that can hurt them. 
For every son that God receiveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth. See, there was that matter. You'd smack those little old hands and you'd say, no, 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 don't you touch that again. And you know what happened if you touch that again? They come back again. You smack those little hands again and you say, no, 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 I've told you for the last time, don't touch that item. And then finally, after about the 15th time, you know, we're very consistent in, 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 in child training. And we're very consistent about that. I told you for the last time, 39 times later, if you do it one more time, you know what's going to happen. But you know what happens eventually? Instead of smacking them on the hand, it gets a little worse. We give them a whipping. That's scourging. Now, God says, look, I, I know I brought you in the family. I know you're a child coming up, and there are going to be times I'm going to chasten you. I'm going to smack your hands. I'm going to say to you, no, 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 don't do that. Don't go there. But if we do not listen to God, if we do not heed God when he smacks our hands, then next time it won't be our hands smacked. He'll take us to the woodshed. He's telling us in his word that he will not let us get by with our sin. Are you listening to me? Adonai Bezak reminds me that he will not. I thought about this week, and I hadn't thought about this in years. I think about a man that I pastored a number of years ago. He was a man that didn't have a lot of education. But he got saved. From out, he was down in the uh, deep gap section of our county. He got saved. His whole family got in church. Began living for God. This is my home church. Began serving God. When I went back, I was fortunate, or I don't know if I was fortunate enough, but I went back and pastored my home church for about two and a half years. And I don't call it fortunate, I call it postgraduate training. But anyway, I went back there. And, uh, but he, he was going through the thing. God began to deal with his heart. I remember one day he came to me and he said, Brother Ken, God's called me to preach. But he said, I, I, I can't read. And he couldn't read. He could barely read his Bible. He could barely write his name. And he said, I, really, I said, do you feel like God's called you? Oh, yes. I said, are you certain God has called you? He said, oh, yes. I said, then if God calls you, he knew you couldn't read. And if God has called you some way, he'll help you to learn to read. He'll give you the ability to learn to read some way. God will help you. If he's called you, he knew uh, that you didn't have an education. He knew that. So don't let that bother you. But he never could get over that. And he'd say to me, God's called me to preach. It wasn't long that he began to miss on Wednesday night. And it wasn't long after a few months that he began to miss on Sunday night. And it wasn't long after that that he was out on Sunday morning and he was out altogether. Had a little farm. And you pull into his driveway, come off the main road, turn down the little gravel road and go down through about a quarter of a mile. And there's an old uh, shed here where he parked his tractor. tractor. He uh, raised cabbage for a living. Living's what he did. So he'd come down the road and here was this old garage, uh, an old shed you might say, and there was his tractor and his tools and uh, instruments that went with the tractor. Next to it was a wood shed. Up here on the hill was the house and whatever there. I could not begin to to list everything to begin to happen in that man's life. I went down to his house. I had been down to his house. If once I was down there a dozen times, and I would say to him, I'd call him by name, and I wouldn't call his name tonight, but I would call him by name. I said, we miss you at church. You need to get in church. Everything began to go wrong. His, one of his sons got in trouble, serious trouble. In fact, he is serving a life sentence in a North Carolina penitentiary tonight for committing murder. And I never forget when I got the call and they told me that his son had been arrested for murder and, and went on and, was, and, as I said, serving his sentence. I remember going to his house. 
I remember going into the house, sitting down, and he was, when I pulled up in the driveway, he was sitting out there on the, on the tongue of that old Ford tractor. And I sat down beside him, and we talked. And we really didn't uh, talk about the weather. We didn't talk about anything. I just looked at him, and I said, don't you think it's time to get back in church? And he said, I know I need to. And he just, just weep. And, and I remember I asked him one day, I said, I said, do you know you're saved? Oh, yes, no doubt about it. I said, do you know God's called you to preach? Oh, yes, no doubt about it. Then I said, you need to get back in church. And he said, I know, but he never would get back in. And things just kept degrading. It wasn't long that him and his wife separated. I remember going down there. She took the, she took the kids and left, and I went down there, and there he sat out in that old woodshed with that old Ford tractor once again sitting there like the longest man in the world. And I said to him, don't you think it's time to get back in church? I know I need to. You know you're saved, yes. You know you're called to preach, yes. Don't you think you ought to get back in church and get right with God? I know I need to, but he never did. And on and on and on and on it went. I, I won't even get into it all, but I remember one night about 3 o'clock in the morning, my phone rung, and whenever it rings at 3 o'clock in the morning, I know something's wrong. I said, hello, and a lady on the other end said, is this... Ken Trivet, pastor of such and such a church? I said, yes, it is. said, do you have a member by the name of so-and-so? I said, yes, I do. And they said, well, he's in intensive care uh, right now uh, over here. And she began to describe what had happened. She said, I think you ought to come immediately. I got up and went to the hospital. I walked in the room. Wasn't anybody there but him and a nurse, which happened to be my aunt. And I walked into there, and there he laid. He had got back to drink and been drinking for several months, got to taking all kinds of pills and whatever there, and, and I don't remember the details, but he had some kind of stroke or something. When I walked into intensive care, he was literally bowed on that bed. And I walked in there and looked at him, and my heart broke. And I thought of a man that used to serve God. I thought about a man that used to live for God. And I thought about everything that had happened after he got away from God. And there he lay. He hooked up all those machines. No family there. They'd all deserted him. And there was no one there but me and my aunt, which is a nurse. We're standing there, and we were talking, and all of a sudden, they had this little machine hooked up to him over there, monitoring his heart. And you know how it goes. Doo -doo -doo, doo -doo -doo. And all of a sudden, that thing just straight line, just like that. And I remember my aunt said, oh, my God. She said, going out in the hall now. And she hit a button, and I walked out in the hall. And they come from every direction rushing into the room. I stood there. And it's almost like a cold, dark stranger came down the hall and kind of brushed me with his shoulder and said, I've got another, and walked on in the room. In a few minutes, my aunt walked out and she said, Ken, she named me, she said, he has expired. Again, I thought about, here's a man that had lived for God. Here's a man that honored God in his life. Here's a man that had limitations, but yet the hand of God was upon him. God had spoke to him. God had called him, but he had got away from God. I'm saying to you tonight, listen. He chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Here is Adonai Bezak. He paid for what he did. He reaped what he sowed. And I remind you tonight of that scene, how it ought to grip our hearts and realize how serious it is, the matter of sin in our life. Don't take sin lightly. Don't treat sin as if it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It's a big deal to God. 
it is a scene that should grip us. Are you with me? One third scene and just a word about it. And that is a scene that should gladden us. Here's 70 kings defeated, groveling like dogs under a table. Here's one that reaped what he sowed. But you go back and the chapter begins with the death of Joshua, the raising up of Judah in his place, and he goes up to fight against the Canaanites. And we find 70 kings defeated. We find one king ultimately defeated. But thank God here is someone that conquered rather than being conquered. And you find Judah winning, and you find Judah overcoming. Two things about Judah's victory. For one thing, he relied on God's promise. Verse 1 and 2, Now after the death of Joshua came to pass, that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. up." And notice what God said, I have delivered the land into his hand. He marched out into the battlefield fighting the Canaanites because God said, I give you the land. You're talking about a fixed fight. It was fixed from the very beginning. He marched out there relying on God's promise. I have given you the land. And he was victorious because he relied on God's power in verse 4. And Judah went up and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into his hand. I want you to understand something tonight. God doesn't want us to live like the 70 kings on the table. God doesn't want, to live like, want us to live like kings that have lost our thrones and lost our thumbs and lost our toes and lost our testimonies. He doesn't want us to live like Adonai Bezak and reap the consequences of our sin. No, God wants us to live like Judah. He wants us to live like the one of praise. He wants us to live victorious in life. How do we live in, victorious in life? It's not by our own ability. It's not about how much you, it, it, winning the battles of life and overcoming the world, the flesh, and the devil it has nothing to do with how strong you think you are, how talented you are. I'm going to tell you how you win the battles of life. You take God at His Word and you rely upon who Christ is that lives within you and you rely upon His sufficiency in your life. We overcome in Him. We win by Him. We conquer by Him. It is His power in our life that enables us to say no when the world says come on. It is His power in our life that enables us to overcome when the devil sets the traps in our life. What we find here is a scene that should gladden us. It ought to stir us that, yes, I can be a victor in life, and I can overcome in life. I submit unto you there's some powerful personal lessons to learn from the toes and the thumbs. Let's stand to our feet, please. Our heads about our eyes are closed. I find that an interesting, interesting story, don't you? Maybe tonight, maybe there's a, someone living under the world's table. Someone that's living far beneath your privileges and living far beneath your position in Christ. Living like 70 kings under a table. Or it could be tonight, there's an Adonai Bezak in here, and you're headed for trouble. There's an Adonai Bezak in here that somewhere you're going to reap what you're sowing. There could be an Adonai Bezak in here tonight that is going headlong in sin. Somewhere there's a payday. Somewhere there's a cost to be paid. Somewhere there is the matter of God dealing with sin. But what God wants in here tonight is a church full of Judas, victors, overcomers, winners in the battles of life. In fact, what we ought to do tonight, maybe you're not under the table, not, maybe you're not an Adonai Bezak, but if there's anything, you ought to fall on your face and say, Dear God, don't let me be one of the 70 kings. Don't let me be an Adonai Bezak. 
Help me to be like Judah, overcoming in life and not defeated in life. Don't let me be pulled down with this world in which I live. Don't let me be sucked in by my flesh and the devil. Lord, help me. God, keep me where I ought to be. Keep me where I can win. Keep me where I can conquer in life. If there ought to be some come tonight, if there's 70 kings here, those in that group, you ought to come. If there's Nat and I, Bezak here, you ought to come. If nothing else, you ought to come and say, God, let me be a Judah. Keep me like Judah. Father, tonight in Jesus' name, here's three scenes before us in your word. And so different. Every one of them has a lesson for our hearts. Thank you for Judah. Because you had given the land and because you delivered the enemy into their hands, Judah was a victor. Lord, let us be like Judah in life. Don't, us be, don't let us be like Adonai Bezak that goes head on with no thought of God or concern for God. Then one day only to reap what we sow. Father, help us tonight not to be like 70 kings defeated, disabled, and disgraced. Don't let us live like that. Let us live like Judah. So speak to us tonight. There are hearts that need to get right, sins that need to be dealt with, or promises that need to be claimed. Let it be done tonight in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to sing one.